Welcome to Art Conversations, and I am your host, Lisa Jane Irvine. As a practicing visual artist, I've had the opportunity to meet many interesting individuals along the way. Every path I've ventured down has provided me with a greater knowledge in the arts, as well as a vast array of experiences that have helped to shape my practice both in and out of the studio. I encourage you to grab a cup of tea or even a coffee and settle in as we begin my conversations with my guests who are working, practicing, exploring, even playing in the arts. Drawing inspiration from aerial views of cities and maps, James Fowler's acrylic, oils, and gouache works on canvas, paper, and wood are playfully geometric and resonate with the digital world and culture of online information distribution. His non-traditional landscape paintings borrow from cartography and geometric abstraction and celebrate both urban centers and rural living. James attended York University in Toronto for film studies and maintains a full-time studio practice as a painter in Toronto. His work has been exhibited in Canada and United States, and his work can be found in private and corporate collections in Canada, the U.S., and Europe. In addition to exhibiting, James has been involved in several curatorial projects, including the 10 by 10 photography project, Nui Rose, and Queering Space at the Archives, formerly the Canadian Lesbian and Gay Archives, to name a few. James is a great mentor to younger artists and has a vast knowledge of the contemporary artists' practice, community building, and social media. Please help me welcome James Fowler to the show. Well, hello there, James, and how are you tonight? I'm very well, Lisa. Thanks for having me on your show. I really appreciate it. Oh, I'm so excited that we get to chat tonight. I'm sure there'll be lots to talk about. Yeah, I'm sure there will. (laughs) So I... Thought we could start with a little bit about the work that you like to do. I know you're very well known for cities and maps of different places. How did you get into that? Uh, years ago, I was working at Canada Newswire, which is now called Decision. It's news and information distribution across Canada uh, and the world. And I spent a lot of time not wanting to be an artist. And I was spending my weekends, I would actually have people over. So this is sort of a small community building project where I would take two different people that I thought should meet. And I would set up my dining room table with um, two big pieces of paper. And I would paint in my living room, or my dining room rather. And the rule was you had to either bring wine or flowers or both. Uh, So I always had wine and flowers in my house. And one day, while talking about sort of city and city living, I just started painting these sort of very Modrian-looking grids. And the person that was there really liked it, and they said, can I buy that from you? And I said, sure. And I made a couple more, and um, those sold. And then there was a cafe over in the east end of Toronto, and they said, do you want to put some stuff up at their cafe? And I made uh, 10 or 12, 10 of them. And they all sold. And I thought, I'm on to something here. At first, they were very abstracted. They kind of had the feeling of a city. And then sort of as I've progressed with them, they've become, A, more and more detailed, but um, also more of very specific cities. It's only in recent years that I have taken the opportunity to try and loosen up my style again and also return to these sort of very abstracted-looking 
cities. They're not a particular place, but what I'll do is I'll take the color palette from maybe the architecture or things that are, you know, associated with the city, whether it be a sports team or local, you know, flora or fauna, and use those to build color palettes. So when you're looking at the paintings, they could be abstract, but you definitely get a feeling that you're in Montreal or Jakarta or Morocco or, you know, any any city around the world, you're going to have that feeling of the colors of the atmosphere and what you see on a pedestrian level, and then take those colors and apply them to a sort of an aerial view or a cartography or a map. They're quite detailed, and I was going to ask you about your color schemes. Do you ever find that people are like, why that color, or you should have done it this color, or yeah? I mean, it's, what's really interesting is how different my work can look based on the color palette. So often, I, I mean, I do a lot of commission work. I do these small 12 by 12 paintings. And I like to, you know, whoever's asking me to do the painting, I like to have that person involved. So I'll ask them, you know, some of their favorite colors, or I mean, I've even done things where I've gone into someone's home and asked them to take a photograph of the clothing that they wear, because they're like, I don't know what colors I like. And I'm like, I'll tell you, open up your closet door. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I try to sort of incorporate those, but also like I said, try to get the colors that you find in that city. But I also have done things, you know, I've done paintings of Toronto where I did one called Toronto in Autumn where I went out and I photographed just the various buildings and lawns in the area that I live. And I found like the grass had a very sort of muted olive drab to it and everything was sort of beige and browns. And I used that color palette. And then I've also painted that the exact same map using very, very bright colors. And they look like very much the same style, but that the color palette is really going to give a, a, a different feeling to, to the two different paintings. So. You've also done a number of pieces that are handkerchiefs with embroidery. It's interesting that we're talking about this now because it's something that's sort of been on the forefront of thought for me. I spent a long time not wanting to be an artist. I come from a a line of painters. My great-grandfather was a, a painter, Percy Bailey. My grandmother, Evelyn Double, she was a painter in Montreal. She went to Le Côte Bazaar, I guess, in the 30s. I guess, like, there were some well-known painters who were teaching there at the time. And so I grew up as a kid with a grandmother in Montreal who had a kiln in her basement. And so, you know, so you hear about how people have a silver spoon in their mouth, and I sort of had a silver paintbrush. And I spent my summers when I was quite young in her cottage. But I didn't want to be a painter at first. And I tried to do other things. And I sort of ended up painting anyway. So I spent a lot of time not wanting to be a painter. And when I finally sort of gave into that, that's when I left the business world. I had a bunch of ties. And I remember saying, I'm never wearing any of these crappy ties again. But what's happened is I ended up painting. And when you get into something, one of the things that can be a bit of a rut for painters is that you do something and you become known for that. And you, you sort of stop experimenting. And that was one. that's one of the things that I find really refreshing about being an artist is that you can change things up and you can have things that inform your practice. Um, one of the trappings can be is that as a commercial artist, you can be commercially successful, but how are you challenging yourself as an artist? What are you learning that's new? And so a couple of years ago, I was in the intergenerational queer residency program um, on uh, Toronto Island, and I had an opportunity to work on some other things. And I decidedly did not want to do maps, which is really interesting because it was observed that even though I wasn't making physical maps, what I was doing was culture mapping. 
And this is where I took this idea of like what happens when you take sort of ear markers or elements from one culture. And I don't mean like sort of like, like an indigenous culture. I mean like corporate culture or what happens when you have like hockey culture. But what I did was I did a number of things. I did mapping um, the drag queen culture onto mm-hmm. hunting culture. And so I did these two different projects. One was these, um, it was called Hunty. It was a series of orange hunting masks, sort of talking about masculinity, toxic masculinity, and, and that sort of culture that's fostered within hunting. And then taking these sort of glittery drag queen makeup and putting them onto these masks. The other project that you just, that you asked about mm-hmm. was the hankies. And that's just, I don't really, I have a working title. It's just hanky code um, or no code. I don't know. We'll play around with that. But what that is, is mapping corporate culture onto disappearing gay men's culture, specifically disappearing gay men's culture in the 80s there was this interesting thing within gay culture where gay men when they went to bars would let others know what sort of proclivities they were into by the various hankies that would be hanging out of their back pocket and if you were topping or bottoming in that sort of whatever that kink was you would put it in your left or right pocket accordingly. Um, And so I'm making a bit of a commentary about how corporate culture or corporations or corporate sponsorship in the arts or corporate sponsorship of queer events comes with a cost, right? And so we have within queer culture, we have the sponsorship that comes in, but with that sponsorship comes, you know, could you tone down these things? Um, We have the TD float with the, you know, these beautiful men and women and thems dancing on floats. Um, but we don't have like the Verizon fisting float, right? And those that's part of a culture that sort of gets swept under the rug. The corporate or pink washing um, happens when you have you know, sort of drag queens and muscle boys and, um, and it becomes this sort of family friendly event and it becomes very sort of desexualized. And so my commentary on that is to take corporate slogans and actually hand embroider them into these hankies. So each hanky representing the various fetishes, whether it be fisting or water sports. So each proclivity or each kink uh, has a different color. And so what I've done is I've gone through sort of the history of corporate slogans and pulled out some choice ones that are very fitting so that if you were to look at these two red hankies and they say different things on them, you could probably guess what that sort of that sexual kink might be. I think there are 66 in total. And I'm about halfway through the project. So So I guess I have two questions coming out of that. When you decided you were doing this residency, did you know that was the work that you were going to do? Was that idea sitting there for a while? That's a good question. You know, one of the things that I like to do when I do any sort of residency or even when I travel as I like to find something that is out there in the spaces that I'm in and have that sort of some in some way inform my practice. And so the hunting mass came from a residency. I did at Owl Ridge Acres in Bancroft, Ontario. I was working on another large painting. It was a commission. And so I thought, you know, I'll spend three months out here and I connected with the locals and we did some like long table dinners with artists from Toronto and from Montreal and from Ottawa. And it was sort of what happens, you know, when you take rural artists and urban artists and put them together and sort of just discussing their practices and something like that. 
And so while I was there, there's a local Stedman's that's in, in Bancroft. And I went in and I thought, okay, I need to make a piece of artwork. And my rule is it all has to come from this Stedman store. <laughs> and so, and it was really interesting. So I, I, you know, I kind of wanted to get in with the local. And so I went into the Stedman's and I bought, it was in the winter and I was uh, walking about a half hour into town to the studio that I had. And uh, I almost got hit by like a snow plow and I thought, okay, I need to be more visible. So I bought a jacket, but it was, you know, it was like, I don't know, November or whatever. And I thought, okay, I'll get one of those hunting jackets that all the hunting people have. And so this is what I thought was a hunting jacket because I'm not a hunter. And I walked in and there was a bunch of people standing around at the place where my studio was. And I said, look, I got a hunting jacket. They said, James that's a high-vis construction jacket. <laughs> so so it's the warmest coat I've ever had uh, in my life, by the way. But so I also found these hunting masks and I didn't know really what I was going to do with them and, and sort of played around with them. And then I was, I think I was watching RuPaul's Drag Race or something. And one day I decided I was just going to paint one and then it becomes two. And then I ended up doing sort of planning that out. And so when I did the residency, the interesting part about doing that residency is I had pre-planned what I was going to be doing for the residency where, where sort of I wanted to experiment with the hankies and sort of come up with that, sort of develop that concept. Um, and at the same time, I was sort of going in with the proposal that I would produce these these masks. But then when I was on the island, I became really fascinated. We, we spent a lot of time at the beach, so we'd work for part of the day and then we'd all, there was uh, five of us, uh, mm-hmm. and we'd all sort of go to the beach and hang out. And I, I became sort of obsessed with the uniformity of the pebbles. And so I started collecting pebbles every day and I had one pebble and I was, I kept picking up pebbles that were the same size. And so I started playing around with the pebbles while I was there. So as, as I'm working on one project and sort of finishing that up, I'm already starting on another one. And so the Pebble Project was this idea of, you know, saviorism. And it was a, sort of a number of things that I was sort of thinking about, uh, about diaspora. You know, what happens when you take a bunch of stones and you take them from one place and move them to another? I started doing portraits of them. So I documented each one of them. I decorated and gave away some of them. Uh, I kept some of them to bring to another beach. And then um, some of them I put back. And so, you know, I was sort of a, the sort of this moving, working, kind of working through. It was a very sort of a meditative process for me. And so, at the same time, I was working on the hankies, I was working on the masks, and then the stones came out of it. And there's a lot of things that came out of the stones. I learned how to make what's called a stereogram, which is you know those things that when you go to university and you stare at it for long enough, and like a word comes out or there's a whale or something. It's called a stereogram, and there's actually a very simple thing you can do with a graph paper to make three or four different levels with it, making a very simple stereogram. And so on the wall in the studio during the residency, I I started putting these rocks and gluing tacks on them and sticking them on a on the wall just to see if I could sort of make a wave pattern and it, and it worked. And I was like, wow, this is really interesting. So as artists, there's things that you think about doing and you, you know, you get to experiment and that's sort of what lights my brain up. And then, and then I come back to my regular studio and people are like, okay, can I get another painting of Toronto? And I'm like, yes, yes, you can. So how do you balance those two worlds then that commercial side where you're getting commissions and people want that map-like work versus the drive to tell these conceptual stories about culture and experience. 
you know, it's it's a kind of one for them, one for me, right? So I have at any given time, I have a number of people that are waiting for paintings for me, which is, you know, at 50 years old, I'm, I'm blessed and I'm very happy that people like my work and that it speaks to them. I have like lots of people who are like architects and city planners who really love my work. And so that keeps me busy, but I do try to put time aside, whether it is making a painting that is not a commission. So for example, right now I'm working on a three foot by four foot um, painting of Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's for me, you know, I'm doing that because I've always wanted to paint Los Angeles and, and no one has asked me to do Los Angeles yet. I've done a bunch of smaller paintings of Ottawa. And so I'm now starting another painting of Ottawa, but a four foot by four foot. Um, mm-hmm. And those will take me into 2022. And I do them sort of in between other projects. I started a project three years ago, not a project, but a painting called Anthem. And I have sort of worked on it he sort of six months will go by and then I'll spend, you know, two or three days on it. Uh, but it's a painting. It's white on white on white. Uh, and it's six feet by six yeah. feet. So it can be really hard on your eyes. I've worked on paintings that are all really, really dark. And mm-hmm. I find, you know, working for long hours during the day on a solid color can be really hard on my eyes. So and really boring. <laughs> like You're like, wow, this is a lot. It's white and beige and cream and gray and so um i don't know if i've answered your question but what i will say, what i will say is that i try to get the work that i have to do out of the way uh, don't get me wrong i do love doing all of it but i sort of get that out of the way or i'll put into my calendar okay in the morning i'm going to be working on these paintings or if there's a deadline coming up i'll focus on the stuff that has deadlines mm-hmm. and then uh, or if i find myself it's sort of like you know when you're in the you know, you're in a grocery store and you have time in a lineup and you can check your phone and things like that. So it's sort of, you know, when I find myself like, hey, I've got three hours, you know what, I'll go down to the studio. And I'm very fortunate to have a studio in the building that I live in. So mm-hmm. I can walk down to my flip flops in the morning and a coffee and go to work like everybody else. So that sounds perfect to me. I would love to do that on a daily basis. You also wear a lot of hats. One part of you is the artist. Another part is curator so can we talk a little bit about that world because even though they go well together right i think well i think something that's really interesting about a lot of people who are artists or working artists um they wear a lot of different hats i i don't know that i know anyone who is just an artist i mean some people teach and so i got i sort of fell into curation kind of accidentally and I'm mostly just interested in looking at curation sort of through a queer lens or looking at art through a queer lens being a queer person is just something that I'm interested in because I do think that there is a difference and there's an aesthetic that can be explored there so in 2011 I was talking to some friends and I was saying you know there isn't any visual art programming during pride or there isn't any regular visual art programming. I mean, you have an exhibition here, an exhibition there. And at the time I was at the White House studio space in Kensington Market and we had recently painted the, the main space and there were a couple of exhibitions for contact and we installed lights and I said, can I do a, a summer show? And they said, yeah. And so I curated a show, um, Joey Bruni, who's a photographer, he works at CBC and a good friend of mine. We were just talking. I said, well, why don't you do some portraits of some some queer people, maybe like queer people in the arts, like musicians or painters or sort of a, a little bit meta. Let's do a photography show, but of people sort of let's celebrate them. And I think we had uh, one or two two three people and then it turned into four photographers and very quickly 
I, I th- said, well, let's do 10 people and each person does 10 portraits, which mm-hmm. was something of a miracle to pull off when we decided this in April, the end of April. So people had May and June to, to get this done in sort of the end of June for Pride. We opened it on Pride weekend, which was the Thursday. And I think I really hit, I guess I hit a nerve because we had tons of people that showed up it was a packed house and uh, anybody that's been to the white house studio um space before knows that it can be a little bit of a sweat box it's up on the upper floor on augusta and there were more people out front than were in the building but it was great it was this cramped little space and and someone said hey you know would you think about doing this again and i said this would be really cool and i talked to caleb robertson was uh working at the gladstone hotel at that time and he said uh, I was actually looking for a new space and I was talking to him and, and he said, let me talk to a couple of people and call me back uh, that I think that afternoon and said, you know, the Gladstone would be really happy to show another exhibition. And so it became in tandem with the That's So Gay show that has now been curated by Marcus, um, Cyrus Marcus Ware for the last uh Oh, half a decade anyway. And so we hit year nine and then COVID hit. And so we have the 10th and final year coming up next year, which I'm kind of excited about. And have you got a venue for that? <laughs> and this is and this is where sort of community building comes in. So, I mean, if, if somebody's out there and they have a really great space and they want to show some queer photography, we already have all of the photographs in the can and we were supposed to show it at the Gladstone. And then the Zeidler family, Christine Zeidler, who I so love and appreciate, uh, you know, sort of really adopted the 10 by 10 project and they became sort of the presenting sponsor. But when they sold the hotel to the new developers, it's a beautiful space, but with the renovations, they lost all of the large exhibition space that's upstairs and so 10 by 10 is left without a home unfortunately i have talked to a few people and i do have a couple of uh irons in the fire so to speak but if there is somebody out there that does have a space and they think it would be great i mean i just thought of like maybe just renting a big space for the month it usually runs i mean in the in the past it's been the big summer exhibition at the gladstone hotel so it it was sort of open in june and run like june July and August, which is, you know, a hell of a run for a photography exhibition in the summer. So it doesn't necessarily need to be that long. But like I said, I have all of the photographers and all the portraits are are ready to go. The book is ready to go. So I just, it's interesting. Um, People had asked why I didn't sort of just do the exhibit online during this pandemic. And I feel like a big part of 10 by 10 is about bringing those people together. I think Christina mm-hmm. Zeidler said it best when she said that it's like a, a homecoming every year. You know, you get to see all of these colleagues and hear what they're doing. And so the arts and queer community can come out um, to celebrate, you know, these 10 photographers, but also 100 new people. So when this project's finished, they'll be, you know, I'll have worked with uh, 100 queer Canadian photographers and collectively we have documented or done portraits of, you know, a thousand LGBTQ uh, Canadians in the arts, which I think is, a, you know, it's a nice little feather in my cap, I guess. But more importantly, um, you really lose that sort of community aspect when it's something that's going online. And I didn't want to do that. So I thought, you know what, I'll just wait until this blows over and we'll bring it back for its final year. I've definitely had the opportunity to attend the show a couple of times. And- oh, good. The energy and the enthusiasm, the excitement and the work is incredible. So I will champion helping you find a space for this. Good. Like you said, having that energy, you can't create that online. 
Right. And so that's how I sort of fell into curation. And then I had an opportunity to work with the archives, formerly the Canadian Lesbian and Gay Archives downtown Toronto. I sort of was introduced to it through someone and I just thought, like, this is really interesting. All of the material that's here you know, why are there not exhibitions regularly being shown? And I, and there are holes in their collection, you know, it's predominantly or has been predominantly sort of a cis, uh, white, gay man collection. I mean, certainly they're, they're continuing to add to their collection. And I thought, why not create an opportunity and do a series of exhibitions as a way of engaging various communities and getting them involved in the archives? And I thought, why not breathe sort of new life into the collection by having a number of artists sort of respond to objects or sort of some of the ephemera that's in their collection. Mm -hmm. And so I was just thinking about how queer people take up space. And, you know, you talk about taking up space and about being present and being visible. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I was um, thinking about, you know, how do queer people take up space? public spaces how do they use buildings how do they you know how do they operate in in their homes and so i asked again this magic number 10 i asked 10 uh, queer canadian artists to go into the collection find something that really excites them and then create a piece of artwork to respond to that and i just i really like the synergy that happens in the conversations that come out of looking at a, a collection that's been sort of hidden mostly from the public and ask people to sort of consider it perhaps maybe in a new way and so we did that and I've worked on a number of different projects so but yeah again it's you know I, I wouldn't want to call myself a curator that sort of works in an institution I think it's more just uh, a curator as a community promoter and uh, using curation or using art to bring a community of people together um, to sort of celebrate their accomplishments or, or look at themselves and maybe a a different way. You're, you're definitely good at that community building and bringing people together and starting those dialogues. That's definitely part of who you are. And that's what I think of when I think of you. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> you're also really good at the social media part of being an artist. How did you get involved with that? Well, that goes all the way back to when I was working at Canada Newswire. So I was working with a, a suit and tie and working with everything from not-for-profits to publicly traded companies on the NASDAQ and the TSX. And often would be in these meetings with these CFOs and CEOs talking about their communication program and their earnings reports and thinking, I'm a charlatan. Why am I here? This is not, I'm not meant to be here. But I spent four and a half years there and I really learned a lot about sales and sales cycle and, and it's really helped me with my own practice and so working with a number of different people who work in sort of communications or sort of marketing teams it just it gave me a great experience and I think that's one of the things that I find interesting about other artists is like how did you come into being an artist or what road you know did you come to get here mm -hmm. and then how have your past experiences how do they inform your practice and what story what elements of these experiences kind of make up your story? And so I was, I actually got a, a job with uh, Akimbo, which is sort of news and information distribution for the arts community, particularly Toronto and, and across Canada. And I, I think I asked Kim Fullerton, who started Akimbo in what, 1999. I think I was on Facebook or maybe it was Twitter or something. And I said, hey, when's Twitter getting an app? Because I thought, 
we should really have an app that you can just look online and, and see like where one of the openings happening. And I knew of Akimbo and I really liked Akimbo, but I was like, why not have an app? And mm-hmm. so Kim put together sort of a, a little bit of a think tank that I participated in. And I guess she liked my vibe and said, hey, how would you like to come on and do some social media? And so I just dove head first and, and learned as much as I could about it. Um, it's a different animal this appendage of the marketing team that at some point was sort of given to some sort of trainee, you know, or volunteer to, uh, to, to, to work on. And I think people have recognized now by now that is a viable way of raising awareness of whether an organization or selling product or whatever. And so I did that for, I don't know, a couple of years. But one of the things that's really interesting or not interesting, but one of the things I have I found frustrating with when you're you know either writing about art or if you're um, doing anything in arts administration is it will often eclipse your practice. And so I you know working at Kimbo was was really amazing, and Kim Fuller is such an amazing woman, and she introduced me to these really amazing people, and I got to go to these places, and you know I was wearing that different hat, and so I wasn't wearing this artist hat, and when I sort of really wanted to sort of dig in and get back into my painting practice, people were like, I didn't even know you were a painter. And mm-hmm. so that's something that I've always tried to keep in check or keep balanced is that, you know, I'm first and foremost, I'm a painter. So I, I do all these other things. And so through Akimbo, we did sort of a, a four or six part series on, on social media for artists and designers. And then when I step, sort of stepped back from Akimbo and sort of work, focused more on my practice, I think I got tapped on the show, shoulder by OCAD and they said, hey, how would you like to develop a, a program for us through the uh, continuing education program? And so I developed that and put that together. And I've done well for myself. And if I can help somebody else out, uh, you know, I have a number of private clients that I work with just to sort of get them online. Often people will call me and say, hey, I don't know what I'm doing or how do you work that Tweety thing or, you know, so I <laughs> sort of have a, a series of questions that I can run through with somebody and sort of help get them online or if they're already online, how to sort of improve their strategy. So I have two questions for you. I know recently you've started to learn the world of TikTok. So- <laughs> uh, TikTok, you don't stop. Um TikTok's good. It's it's a again, it's a different animal and, and depending on the you know the audience that you want to attract, TikTok could be a great thing, depending on what you're selling. I mean, if you're, you know, this very serious artist who has a number of people writing critically about your work, maybe that's not for you. But as a commercial artist, I you know, I've I've already made a few sales from it and I've only been doing it since I think May of this year. So in five months I've managed to collect like just over eight thousand followers. But it's interesting, like there's every platform that you have, social media platform is going to have a different set of rules. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I find that is different about TikTok, is you really can't take yourself seriously. You have to be doing it because you're having fun doing it. It's sort of like, um, you know, when somebody works in like retail and you go into a store, you can always tell that person by either their pace or the way they're looking at you. Like you're like, that's somebody at the store that works here and they're about to come over here and ask me and try to sell me something. And so, you know, the age group of that audience that's on TikTok is incredibly savvy. These are people that grew up with the internet. Mm-hmm. And so if they get a sort of a whiff of like, you know, buy my art and make me famous or, or you know they also don't put up with bullshit like they're fairly intuitive and they're there to have fun and yes you can sell your work but yeah I'm just, i'll leave it at it's a different animal i mean I, i've had to learn 
very quickly that like there's just certain things you can't do. And each social media platform has a different set of algorithms. I was talking to an artist friend who's living in England who was visiting last week, Charlie Hunter, and we were just talking about how the algorithm that runs um, Spotify is fantastic. And I, and I really quite like it in terms of finding new music. It will look at your playlists and compare it to other playlists and then suggest songs that aren't on your playlist that are on other playlists that are like yours. When you start to put into that algorithm paid plate sort of spots, you're not now just getting things that, you know, that are recommended by other people, but this corporation. And that's where I feel like algorithms really get ruined is when you have that paid spot in there. And yes, you know, Facebook and and Twitter and Instagram, they need to make their money and that's all fine and well, but it really screws with those algorithms. And so you end up with things that you're like, you know, I turned 50 and I got like ads for like old age things. Like Facebook knows that I've turned 50. And so I got an ad for like a depends kind of product the other day. And I was like, wow, thanks Facebook. You're making me feel you're young at heart. And yet you go over to TikTok and you have a lot of fun. <laughs> and then you go over to TikTok and it's like, you know, it's, yeah, I, I mean, it's fun. I, I, I have found it a bit frustrating in that, you, you know, because I'm gay and because I'm a bear and because there's a lot of thirst traps on there that are like, look at me with my shirt off. It can be a little frustrating. And my partner is sort of a, a big beard too. So like we were on holiday and we were at the beach and I posted a clip of him running around on the beach and it got like 6,000 likes. And then I post my artwork and it gets like 40 likes and I'm like, screw you, TikTok. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I'm like, here, Rick, can you just hold my artwork for me? And, uh, <laughs> there, just lower, a little lower. Okay, they're good. So you, you sort of, you have to gain the algorithms that are there. It certainly is not, so far, sort of a warning to other artists, it doesn't really reward artists for simply showing their work. It's not mm-hmm. like Instagram where you can just sort of take a picture and it's not a still image. And mm-hmm. that's one of the things that's happening right now is you've got this new introduction, sort of this introduction of this new aspect of Instagram and they have made no bones about it. They've said, we're doing this because we need to compete with TikTok because we're losing those eyeballs to TikTok. And that's now the algorithm has changed for, for um, Instagram and it's now rewarding people for making moving images. So now you have all these people who are artists or designers or whatever who don't do video and they're now sort of in this panic to like, oh, now I have to make these like little productions of my artwork. There's a number of different apps out there, by the way, that you can use. Like there's like an iMovie, you can make little movies and stuff for an iPhone. The other um, app that I use is, um, it's called Stop Motion, where you can turn your camera on and say, okay, take a f- one frame every second and it'll do a little time lapse of you painting and things like that. So if there are artists that are out there that are interested in doing that, there's, there's lots of little apps that are out there to, to help you. So how do you manage to balance learning all these new programs and apps with being an artist, <laughs> getting into your studio and then, you know, managing projects? A number of years ago, I... <laughs> I was in therapy and I did a whole, oh, this exercise on goal setting and it really kind of stuck with me. And it's come down to, there's a woman by the name of Deborah Ho. I'll spell that for you. It's D-E-B-O-R-A-H and then H-O. If you go to her website, DebraHo.com, mm-hmm. um, she actually has these sort of time sheets. Uh, and so you do one for the week. It's, it basically, it's a weekly planner, but it's like an entire page. And so I, I've taken on for a while now that's how I manage it I have to write it down I have to like 
block out like, okay, I'm doing French lessons from here to here. And then I'm going to, you know, you're talking about all the different hats that you're wearing and it's like, okay. And then what I'll do is I'll look at my week and be, okay, well, what have I not done? What's missing here? Oh, I haven't done anything for this curatorial project that I'm working on. Okay. Let's, where can I fit that in? And so I make these lists every day of things that need to get done. And these are my top three and I block those in and then fill in the rest of the space with the other things that, that I might be able to get done during the day. And then, Anything that doesn't get done gets put back on the list and gets maybe mm-hmm. done the next day. So, and then I do an evaluation at the end of every week, like what got done, what didn't get done. But yeah, I mean, I do it daily, and then like every Monday, I do what's happening for the week. But yeah, I mean, the, the only way to get ahead is to just be disciplined and about it. And I could write a book on how to not be a professional, and so so this has really helped in just keeping me organized and keeping everything on my plate. But as you had said earlier, like learning how to say no to things is probably should be in my wheelhouse. Yeah, it's hard when opportunities come along, though. You always want to think, well, what if that doesn't happen again? Or maybe this is the one. Mm -hmm. And I've had hard lessons, right, where, you know, you overcommit to people and you're like, you've got, you know, 20 things on your plate. And then you're delivering something that's just not it's sort of subpar. And then it's Mm -hmm. like, well, you know, I don't want to work with that person because they're, you know. They're sloppy with their work or whatever. So, but I mean, again, I just, the eyes on the prize is, is that I, you know, I'm keeping painting. I wouldn't give it up. Right. I mean, I worked in film for a number of years. I worked in film for 10 years and someone said, you know, if you never make a film, what would you do? And I said, well, I, I don't know. I'd find something else to do. And they said, well, if you never painted again, what would you do? And I was like, well, then that's game over. Right. So mm-hmm. that's like my first passion. And I think that, you know, other artists probably feel the same way. You know, you have to really love what you're doing to continue doing it because, you know, if you're doing it for the money. <laughs> so what advice would you give to young artists starting out? That's a good question. I think about what would I say to myself, you know, mm-hmm. my younger self, maybe in my teen years, I would say, read as, read as much as you can read, you know, read all the art magazines, read critical writing. I would say, you know, get it, get involved. I did a, a talk a few years ago. I think it might've been with one of your classes about volunteering and get involved, go volunteer. If you're a young person, go volunteer at a gallery, go volunteer at an artist run center. You know, that's a great opportunity for you to go in and maybe there'll be a guest speaker or an an artist who's doing a talk and you'll have an opportunity to talk to them or you might end up, you know, you're stacking up chairs at the end of the night and you get to talk to the curators. Every volunteer thing or position that I've had um, in sort of my art career has always led me to a paid position later on. And so I was on the board of directors of volunteer position at the Whitewater Gallery in, in North Bay when I was younger, which led to a curator's assistant job when I went in Toronto when I was up at York University. So yeah, so volunteer where you can. And I think, you know, something I learned really late uh, because I spent so much time not wanting to be an artist, not, you know, I'm sort of avoiding it. Um, is that when you do decide that that's what you want to do to sort of make a list of your goals and then just do build a work back plan. Like, this is what I want to be doing. Like, if you know, okay, I want to show at the Venice Biennale. What are all the things that you need to do to get there? And then put all of those things on a list and just slowly sort of chip away at each one of them. That's great advice, actually. That's very good advice. Yeah, Thanks. I always end off my podcast by asking my guests to recommend one book that they think creatives or other artists should read. Do you have a book or a selection that you would recommend? You know, I've read a few books. I think it's a great question. I was reading a book about writing 
And one of the pieces of advice that was sort of elaborated on was about this quote, you know, writing what you know. And this person who was writing about it broke it down and they said, it's not about writing what you know. It's about writing what you want to know about so that there's an element of research involved. I think there are people who are artists who maybe don't have anything to say, right? And so art doesn't always have to say something. It can be something that's pretty that matches your couch. That can be art as well. But what I would recommend is that um, I have a friend, Sean Stewart, who's an artist, and him and his uh, wife were dentists, and they, I think they took like this used uh, FedEx van and they converted it into like a, a roving dental office, and they went and drove through South America, sort of a dentist without borders, and then, you know, he's doing very well with his practice, and then he says, okay, I'm going to be an artist now, and he, now he's done his master's, and he's doing quite well. But what I would say is in terms of reading is read a lot of books about a subject that you're interested in, like read about a lot of different things. And in those books, you'll probably find a lot of inspiration more so than the how to books of like how to make sure that the labels on the back of your artwork are correct or Mm -hmm. uh, that sort of thing. So I also, you know, there's like some really great biographies that are out there on various artists. And I think that that might be a bit of a roadmap on either things to do or things not to do in your art career. So I hope that answers your question. Well, that's perfect. Well, thank you so much, James. I really appreciate you joining me this evening and sharing your wisdom and insights and a little bit about your journey. It was a pleasure, Lisa. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to Art Conversations with Lisa Jane Irvine. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe and hit the like button. And don't forget to check out my website, Facebook, and Instagram accounts. Thank you for listening. See you next time.